Occupational epidemiology is one of the longest standing areas of epidemiologic research. Evidence from occupational epidemiology provides the foundation for safety standards in the workplace as specified by the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. Evidence has also contributed to determinations by global bodies such as the International Agency for Research on Cancer, which has designated exposures as carcinogens largely based on occupational epidemiology evidence. The field has broader relevance. While exposures to things like radiation and asbestos may be more concentrated in the workplace, they occur outside of the workplace in an environment in which they are much harder to study. Therefore, evidence from occupational research can inform broader public health interventions. The breadth of occupational epidemiology necessarily evolves over time. Historically, much of the focus has been on exposures in so-called blue-collar areas, textile workers, petroleum facility workers, or similar settings where exposures are more tangible. The impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on emergency workers reminded us all of the importance of work as a key determinant of health. We have seen the rise of deaths of despair among less educated Americans facing the loss of stable jobs, and there is growing attention to racial disparities in the workplace. As the tech industry has exploded and remote workers have increased in numbers, new questions arise regarding the impact of sedentary work and mental health. There's no doubt that occupational epidemiology's relevance will continue into the future. Today, we're going to discuss the field broadly, where it has been, where it's going, and what we've learned from it. I'm your host, Ghassan Hamra, assistant professor at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, and this is Epidemiology Counts from the Society for Epidemiologic Research, a podcast that gives you up-to-date information on the state of health research straight from researchers who are deeply involved with this work. I'm joined by Epidemiology Counts host Brian James, Associate Professor at Rush University Medical Center. Hi, Brian. Hey, how are you doing? Glad to be on this. Great. Today, we're joined by Ellen Eisen, Professor at the University of California, Berkeley in the Department of Environmental Health Sciences. Dr. Eisen is the director of their Occupational and Environmental Epidemiology Training Program. Thanks for joining us, Ellen. I'm happy to be here. Great. So just as a start to the conversation, I just, I'm curious to ask, what got you started in this area in the first place? Well, uh, I'd be happy to talk about that for a few minutes. Um, do you have, do you have a, an hour? Uh, because it's actually- We do. Small... <laughs> <laughs> we actually do. Right, because it, it was a little, little, it was circuitous, uh, my, my, um, my path to getting here. So I um, started out as a, a math major in college. I was an undergrad at Michigan in Ann Arbor. And, um, and after I finished college, I taught high school math for a couple of years, didn't really much like that. Moved back to the East Coast um, uh, after that and um, decided I needed to go back to school to, to do something different than, than teach high school math. So I, uh, st I took some courses at MIT in statistics um, and, uh, and realized that I liked, liked statistics a lot. Um, and decided I would try to get a master's in statistics. So I uh, talked to some people around in, in Cambridge and, and at that time, biostatistics was just emerging as a new field. And Fred Mosteller, who was a very well-known statistician had just moved from the main campus at Harvard over to the Harvard Public Health School to start a new program in biostatistics. So I was encouraged to apply there um, because that's where the funding was and, and the, the sort of the energy. So I, I did that. So I enrolled in a master's program in biostatistics um, and um, 
And it was early on in that program that I realized a couple of things. Number one, I realized I really did like statistics and I probably wanted to stay and do a PhD. And secondly, I realized that it was a little too dry to me to just stay in statistics. And I looked around the school and and where really people were very excited at that time was over in environmental health and particularly in occupational health, which at the time, this is now in the late 70s, was, was well-funded and uh, there was a lot of support for students. And there was a, a large program, a large, very active program in occupational health. So I went and talked to the chair at the time, uh, a man named John Peters, whether he thought there was any thing in common with biostatistics and occupational health, any way to merge the two interests. And he said, absolutely, you know, you can even stay in biostatistics, we'll support you the whole way through your PhD program. And I said, no, actually, I really want to do a joint degree. I want to do, you know, a, a completely immersive <laughs> uh, occupational health and biostatistics degree. So that's what I ended up doing. And um, so I never really, interestingly enough, I was never encouraged to take any epidemiology. In fact, I was told, oh, it's really all just statistics and occupational health, and there's you don't need anything. <laughs> yeah, we gear that a lot. <laughs> yeah, so anyway, I've been I've been spending the rest of my the rest of my career making up for that for that gap, and I now uh, finally you know, I'm now pretty comfortable to describe myself as a as an epidemiologist, um, and most of the training that I've had has been on the job and largely from students actually. So. Um, I was hired at Harvard in that department where I trained as assistant professor, and I stayed there for a few years, and then I moved to a, another new exciting program at UMass Lowell. Uh, mm -hmm. David Wegman, who had been my thesis advisor, who left Harvard to start a new program at UMass, uh, was getting going off the ground, and so I moved there. Stayed there for about a dozen years. And then in early 2000s, I, I actually, in the late 90s, I went back to Harvard. And then five years later, I moved out to Berkeley. So I've been at Berkeley now for 15 years, still in an environmental health uh, science department, which is where I've always operated. But basically, I run an occupational epidemiology program here, which has been probably the best part of my career has been the last, I'd say, 15 years that I've been at Berkeley. Great. Nice. Yeah, it's often it's often the case that the uh, I, I don't think I know of a department of just occupational health at this point. I think it's all it's all just it's always blended, which kind of makes sense in some regard. Right. Although there are a few. I mean, I think there's actually at, at McGill, I think it may still be called something. Well, maybe it's occupational epidemiology or something, mm -hmm. but it really is. It's very prominent. Uh, there are very few places, though. Yeah, and you're right. Actually, McGill, I remember that. Yeah. It's one of yeah. the few places there is actually a substantial amount, but you're yeah. right. It's really gotten subsumed and and more and more so over time, more subsumed in environmental epi. Yeah, yeah. So you know, traditionally, occupational epidemiology is focused on the things we might kind of describe as the physical or chemical exposures, the things mm -hmm. we can kind of imagine exposure in a more kind of natural way, like exposure to asbestos, exposure to soot, exposure to radiation. These things that occur in the workplace. So can you give us a little bit of insight into the history of these of research into these kind of things and how occupational epi has really contributed to yeah. like things like worker safety mm -hmm. to protect them from these things? Or, you know, in some cases, I guess, I mean, I, at some point, I suppose it was right. It was a question. Are these things bad in the first place? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think your introduction was really right on in the sense that unlike um, risk assessment in environmental in the environmental sphere, when you're talking about occupational 
risk, you can actually use human data to assess you know, health effects of exposures that are, people are actually being exposed to. Mm -hmm. And so epidemiology really drives the health standards in the workplace in a way that's unique. Um, and because we have human data on exposures to things like asbestos and radon um, and lead and things that the general population is also exposed to, um, you write that a lot of these, a lot of the best epidemiology on those hazards was, was first done in occupational settings. And so I think, you know, the field has made a huge contribution in terms of what we know about human carcin carcinogens. Um, the other thing I would say is that, uh, so I think on the one hand, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a huge contribution. The other thing I think is attractive and remains attractive about occupational epidemiology is that it's a study of vulnerable populations. And I do say that right. because I, I feel like we're studying workers who don't have a choice in, in, in terms of what they do. Yes, they accepted the job. That's true. But you need to work. Yeah. Um, so I think that um, it has more uh, traction for people who are sort of public health activists who are interested in you know, helping those less well off and, and focusing on more um, I wouldn't call them precarious populations, but they are vulnerable. And so I think that, right. that used to attract a lot of students. And now those same students are attracted to global health issues more, more generally, I think, um, and environmental threats, you know, more global environmental threats. But I, I feel like this vulnerable population piece of occupational epi is still a very vibrant piece, a part of the core attractiveness of the field. And I myself am still studying manufacturing workers and miners um, mm -hmm. and exclusively, actually, I haven't really, um, gone very far afield from that. Uh, and it's true. You're right that the, you know, the work, work is changing and people are working in many different ways. Um, and you raise issues about remote work and social mm -hmm. loneliness or personal loneliness. Oh, we're getting all into that. Huge topics. <laughs> yep. They're huge topics, but, yeah. but I don't think, um, but I myself am not so much drawn to study those, uh, okay. particularly when remote work is a choice. I mean, it's partly how I view it. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, so it is less compelling to me, I guess, as a, as a hazard. Interesting, yeah. Well, well I have a follow-up question that actually ties into um, your story of how you got started. And it was interesting to hear you say that there was an occupational health department you know, and then you said, well, how can I apply kind of epidemiologic idea or statistics? And then it became occupational epi kind of across the board in a lot of places. But I think a lot of our listeners might be wondering, you know, what is the difference between occupational health and occupational epi? So, you know, how is epi, how, mm -hmm. epidemiology in particular, rather than say chemistry or some of the other ways that we might measure how an exposure affects humans, contributed uh, to our understanding of occupational safety? Right. I mean, occupational health um, it does is a multidisciplinary field, and that was another sort of attractive feature, I think, mm -hmm. of it that it did bring together people interested in chemistry, mm -hmm. people interested in statistics, with people interested in you know medicine mm -hmm. um, and ergonomics. I mean, all all these different sure. um, and, and um, you know health educators, mm -hmm. all uh, organizers, labor organizers. <laughs> And there right. was a lot of collusion at the beginning between the students and the labor movement, for example. Um, and but the epidemiology, in my, you know, from my vantage point, is what is the glue that puts together the exposure mm -hmm. assessment, which might be done by physical scientists, you know, right. 
environmental health scientists mm-hmm. and the meta and the health outcomes, which are often, you know, uh, led studies led by physicians, occupational mm-hmm. physicians, but you got to be able to put those two things together. And that's where the epidemiology comes in. Gotcha. Yeah. It would seem like, I mean, you, you know, you've got this population when you talk about occupational epidemiology where you can start you can see incidents of these outcomes arise in a way that's and where you know it's almost like you have a it's not a it's not a randomized controlled trial by any means but you have an intervention that um you know you may or may not know of I, I would assume that actually some of the exposures kind of emerge through the study you know what is it about this particular job that's making so many people sick oh it's this particular chemical, right? You know, so it, it may be interesting how uh, maybe you can tell some some of the insight into the historical context here about how like you know diseases pop up, exposures pop up, and you make right. these connections because you've got this group that kind of are all exposed to this similar things. Yeah, I mean, I guess I think um, I think back to uh, like the early studies of benzene, for example, mm-hmm. where um, in that case it. it there was a lot of clinical evidence already that benzene was toxic and mm-hmm. and and potentially carcinogenic, but there really wasn't any any large scale human data mm-hmm. to support those clinical observations. So right. NIOSH went around looking for for a, a population to study that had some benzene exposure, you know, and found these biofilm saran wrap uh, companies oh, and um, where were they again? Ohio. Um, mm-hmm. and studied these, these plants and, and was able to establish the link between benzene and leukemia. Mm-hmm. I think um, some of the big early like rubber industry studies or, um, well, I, I actually think most of the large cohort, occupational cohort studies that I can think of were really more driven, not so much by an industry and, and that had lots of different exposures and, and sort of like a um, looking to see what was the toxic most toxic exposure. I think it was more usually driven by, we think formaldehyde is a problem. Let's find an industry where we've got a lot of formaldehyde and then mm-hmm. let's, let's study it there. Mm-hmm. Um, so a more focused cohort study with usually a, a particular agent in mind and then chose, and choosing a manufacturing process where there aren't a lot of other potential carcinogens around, you know, so they right. can isolate it. Isolate mm-hmm. it, right, exactly. Mm-hmm. So Very I cool. think those are the sort of more standard Big, big, famous cohorts. Got you know, it. And then there's my auto workers uh, cohort mm. in Michigan, which I, I'm sure we'll get to at some point because it's, mm. yeah. It's, it's well, pretty- actually, that's exactly what I was going to bring up next. <laughs> so, <laughs> conveniently, um, so yeah. with with regard to the auto workers cohort, right? So you've been, you and others have studied this cohort for years, right? And so let's, let's use the, decades, decades, mm. decades. Yes. So let's use it as a working sample, right? Yeah. There are certain exposures in settings like that, auto workers. I, I've done some work, very little, but some work with like textile facilities, right? Uh-huh. Looking at asbestos exposures and health outcomes. And at some point you have this strong body of evidence to say like, okay, we're good. We know that this these exposures are bad for health in these certain ways. But there's continued need for work in this area. So, for example, mm. let's use the auto workers as a as a nice example yeah. of like what is the continuing direction of research in occupational epidemiology in this area when certain aspects of it we know are you know we we've already got a strong body of evidence and we feel confident like at this point we're defending the workers and saying like well, you these exposures are bad we need to make policy about it but there are other things that we can continue to work on in this area. 
Well, it's a really, it's a pretty interesting story. And, 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 and I wish it was as clear as the way you just described it because, <laughs> um, you know, we started this study in 1985 when I was a postdoc um, and, you know, selected the plants and collected all the administ- you know, the employment records and started mortality follow-up, both retroactively and prospectively. And the and it was motivated by the actually UAW concerns about digestive cancers in the workers. Mm, okay, I was going to ask what sparked this. Mm-hmm. That was what sparked it. And at the time, the auto industry had a joint labor management advisory board that um, was set up to actually fund research. Um, and so we were funded jointly by the UAW and GM to to do this study, and. Uh, so there were suspicions that these were there uh, that these metalworking fluids were carcinogenic, but there wasn't a lot of evidence, and there was no standard. Um, and so you know, it took us a while to collect the data, maybe five or ten years to really get the data all collected and analyzed. But you know, by what we were looking at exposures over a dec- over a long period of time on cancer mortality and more recently on cancer incidence. And over this 75 year follow-up period, basically exposures had decreased a lot. Um, you know, from the fifties and sixties, they really did um, go, go get quite a lot lower in the seventies, eighties, nineties, et cetera. So there was never, we never in all of this time that I've been working on this cohort and we have pu- published dozens and dozens of papers. Um, we have never found a clear absolutely, you know, dead on positive result huh. that you could take to OSHA and say, you've got to regulate this thing. In uh, fact, meaning the agent, you haven't discovered yeah, the agent. Well, no, it wasn't even the agent. Even, oh. even a, it was a complex mixture. These fluids are complex mixtures. Mm-hmm. They contain, right. you know, poly, polyaromatic hydrocarbons and ethanolamines and, you know, by, there's, um, there's uh, organic stuff that grows and it's, Toxic too, and so there's a lot, a whole mix of a toxic soup. But we were just studying actually the complex mixtures. We weren't, we didn't, we couldn't measure the individual components. So even just to say whether people who breathed in these fluids had a higher risk of cancer was really the question we were trying to answer, and there was not ever, even though some, even though some of the components were human carcinogens, you know, like polyar, like these PAHs, Hmm. Um, but we never saw uh, anything that clear. In fact, in the late 90s, um, there was an advisory board that was set up to decide whether to petition OSHA to set a standard for metalworking fluids. And this is now the late 90s. So we'd already published, I mean, there's a lot of suggestive stuff. I'm not saying there's nothing. There's a lot of suggestive positive Mm -hmm. findings, but they're all, you know, they got wider confidence intervals. Um, You know, there's just nothing so clear. So- they were going to actually recommend a, a, a standard based on respiratory effects in the late 90s because there wasn't really a cancer, you know, a <laughs> clear enough cancer outcome. Mm-hmm. Um, and then OSHA decided it wasn't a high enough priority, even though it does cause this um, hypersensitivity pneumonitis. The water-based mm-hmm. fluids can cause this, um, it's like an acute uh, uh, respiratory, respiratory, respiratory uh, disease, right? right? Mm-hmm. That's not fatal usually, but mm-hmm. it's, it's um, and asthma, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, but right. so, and then gradually over the next, over the past, you know, 20 years, let's say, the evidence has probably gotten stronger. I, today, I would say, I mean, we're just now finishing a big NIOSH grant um, where we looked at cancer incidence. 
Now this is after 75 years of follow-up, although cancer incidence doesn't start until 85 when the Michigan Cancer Registry got started. So our follow-ups only, you know, 30 years of cancer incidence. But we've got pretty, I'd say modest evidence, evidence of modest increase in digestive mm. cancers mm. and metabolic fluids. Um, but, e but even there, it is, you know, maybe at this point, maybe stomach cancer, which was the lead concern of the UAW back in 1985 was yeah, stomach cancer. Yeah. And yeah. we never really saw excess stomach cancer related to increased exposure to these metalworking fluids until oh. this most recent round looking at cancer incidence mm -hmm. rather than mortality. Um, so, I mean, what I would say now is these fluids at the levels at which people are currently exposed are maybe modest carcinogens, mm -hmm. but I don't, but the risks are not huge. That I just want to find. Got it. I just want to ask a clarifying question. This is a yeah. really interesting story. But when you say the, uh, when you're talking about the findings, you know, being mixed or, or not conclusive, yeah. are you talking about um, whether or not this group of people, auto workers, have a higher uh, rate of either mortality or incidence of cancer compared to the general population? Or are you talking about people who are more exposed to these uh, fluids that you're talking right. about have a greater, within the auto yeah. workers, have a greater incidence or mortality from cancer. That's an excellent question. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. You're getting well, into Ellen's bread and butter here with all right. you're, getting into, you're, getting, you're getting right into that. So, in fact, if you look at their mortality rates and compare them to the general population, the mm -hmm. auto workers compared to the U.S. general population, yeah. the auto workers are doing really well. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, they're, they're, they're what we call standardized mortality ratios, which is uh -huh. where you just compare death rates due to mm -hmm. specific causes to the general population. Um, they're, they're less, you get less than expected numbers, certainly of heart disease deaths, respiratory disease deaths. Hmm. Cancer deaths, actually, they're pretty close to the general population, which right there gives you a tip because hmm. that there's something wrong because the general population rates, you know, death rates include people in hospitals, people who are too ill to work. Right. Um, whereas workers are healthy enough to get hired in the first place, at least, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. Even if they don't stay that way. So you expect they have a health advantage, um, those workers. So to see them even the same as the general population in terms of cancer mm -hmm. risk, that that's a worrisome sign. Gotcha. So, so all of the, so if you're really looking to, for, for, to make etiologic conclusions about does, does exposure to metalworking fluids cause cancer, you really got to look inside mm -hmm. uh, a worker population at, and compare workers exposed to more metalworking fluids right. compared to workers exposed to less. Like dose-response relationship. Like, like exactly, mm -hmm. like a dose-response relationship. You would expect that people exposed to more have mm -hmm. higher risks of cancer. And that's what you have mixed findings for. That's what we have mixed findings for, gotcha. exactly. God. But, you know, but even there, even, even those contrasts, you know, workers who have more exposure compared to workers who have less are also plagued by this, you know, very uh, persistent bias where you've got workers who are healthier, mm -hmm. longer, can be mm -hmm. exposed to more toxic stuff and still mm -hmm. feel okay. I mean, there's a huge range in people's susceptibility to getting sick, yeah. given an exposure, as we all see now with COVID. I mean, we're yeah. sort of really, you know, it's been brought home. Yeah. People have yeah, very definitely. different susceptibilities to. to, to I would it. also think it's confounded a little bit by like, you know, where you are in the company, you know, as you rise through the ranks, you're probably exposed less and less to these well, things. That's, so, sure. that's yeah. for sure true. That's Although our focus was our cohort was all hourly workers. 
So Got these it. people all stayed hourly. We didn't uh, include any white collar. Got it. Uh, Got although it. you're right, in, in a big study of Alcoa workers that I was also involved in, we did have a lot of white, uh, white collar employees in that data set and yet and there was certainly transfer and then right exposure certainly go down right that way so So for for our listeners the phenomenon that you're talking about here is the healthy worker effect which i'm not going to go into details about it just if everybody's interested in listening to this look it up it's a it's super (laughs) fascinating but to the extent right this idea that workers who are in the workplace are fundamentally healthier in the first place and therefore studying their health effects is a different kind of beast. So are there, are there good examples from occupational epidemiology where, like, when did this kind of, this idea come to, or when did people realize it? And, and did it change the way that people perceived health effects of certain exposures in the workplace? Are, are there any good case studies where people were researching and saying, we're not finding an association? And they said, oh, well, we have this kind of healthy worker thing going on and then they adjusted the ah, approach to the question and then said oh actually we really <laughs> need to address this in the workplace right mm. well so that brings me to another one of my favorite topics which is that i think um I, the healthy worker effect is is a problem is an old is a well-known problem that's been around that was acknowledged back in the probably um I don't know, 50s, 60s, 1950s, 60s, 70s, certainly 70s. Um, By the way, when we say problem, we mean for for causal inference and study. It's not a problem for the workers, which is a good thing that they're healthier. <laughs> right. So let's talk. Yes, I'm yeah, sorry. Right, yes, right. and let's make that right. <laughs> yeah. so we talk about, we're talking about a, a source of bias in epidemiology. Right, right, right. When, when yeah. I talk about healthy worker effect, yeah, I'm yeah, talking yeah. about a bias. <laughs> and yeah, that bias exactly. is the one that Hazani just described, right? Um, and um, where healthier people are hired and healthier people stay at work longer and get more exposure. Right. And you can, you can get um, really uh, very surprising and counterintuitive results if you don't, if you aren't aware of, of that going on. Mm-hmm. And I think the fact that that self-selection um, goes on in workplaces where healthier people stay, um, is something that that's been well known for a long time, but but until you know until uh, some of these new causal inference methods were developed in the in the eighties and and nineties, there weren't really statistical approaches to 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 address the problem. You couldn't really fix the problem, even though you were very aware that it was probably causing you to underestimate how hazardous workplace exposures were. There was nothing you could really do in your data to actually figure out the real etiologic um, Hmm. results until, you know, we, until Jamie Robbins came along and developed that whole field of statistics. And I think that in fact, that's what allow has allowed me to maintain the um, vibrancy of my program at Berkeley was because these statistical methods are so attractive to, to people interested in, to academics, Mm -hmm. um, people interested in, in epidemiology. They attract students, and if you have, and I, and this data set of the auto workers, it may not have produced clear results, but it is a fabulous, well conducted study with good mm-hmm. measures of exposure mm-hmm. over seventy five years. Great follow up. We have hardly lost anyone to follow up. Mm-hmm. So it's a right. it's a complex longitudinal data set that's got all the components you need to actually apply these new statistical approaches. Mm-hmm. 
Got to it. address that problem. And I think that's what's attracted, you know, biostatistics students and epidemiology students to come work with me so that they can access these the data sets, mm-hmm. you know, to, to apply these methods that they're learning. So I'm curious. So aside from just like in all fields of epidemiology, aside from statistical adjustment, another way to deal with uh, these issues in, in this particular case, the healthy worker bias um, would be at the point of study design, right? So I'm thinking of, of, do you ever conduct studies where you compare one group of workers who have a particular exposure to another group of workers, very similar situations, industrial situation, but they just don't have that exposure to that type of fluid. So you can kind of adjust, you know, you're matching on the fact that they all work and they all got the healthy worker effect going on. And then you can really isolate just whatever agent that you think is involved. Well, that would be a good way to get at the first, there's, you know, these two components of the healthy worker effect. The first is about the healthy hire part that yep. healthier, that part you could really address the way it, using the study design you just suggested. And in mm-hmm. fact, that early study of benzene and leukemia that I mentioned mm-hmm. at the beginning about in the pliofilm workers, they actually eventually did get a, a, a population of fiberglass workers or something okay. um, yeah. with, yeah, and, and use that as the comparison group. So they did just what you said. But the, but the point is though, that that doesn't really account for the other part, the survivory part of the healthy mm-hmm. worker effect, where not only are you healthier at the start, but if you don't stay healthy, you end up either leaving the workplace or transferring mm-hmm. to a less exposed job or in some mm-hmm. way, um, self-selecting to a lower exposure category so that even when even within worker populations, you can get distorted results when you compare high to low exposed. So it turns out it's, it's a problem as I've, I've been, I've been interested in the same problem since I was a doctoral student. So it's like, it, it just keeps on giving. I mean, it just is, right. it's just endlessly fascinating. You can turn it around and look at it lots of different ways. And I, and I know this is for so I'm now getting a little bit more into the esoteric aspects of my work. That's okay. I'm supposed to keep it down, like on <laughs> the okay. application. All these parts and aspects of what you do and why you do it are, are interesting yeah, to our yeah, listeners, yeah. I'm sure. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And, I mean, and we're so, actually, can I just change the subject one second? Or, or sure. maybe, yeah. well, I'll let you change the subject. Yeah, you go ahead. I'm not going to change the subject. We're still talking about occupational. <laughs> yeah, oh, for sure. Oh, for sure. <laughs> yeah, no, um, I was just... I was just going to ask um, as a follow-up. So, you, what you what you've said about the the auto worker study is that over all these decades, you've mm-hmm. found you've had some findings, and none of them kind or many of them haven't been quite as compelling as you might have anticipated. But in terms of development of standards in the workplace for mm-hmm. uh, agencies like OSHA, at what point does the evidence? become compelling so that they say we have to do interventions is it more Mm -hmm. driven by the evidence or is it just as equally driven by advancements in technology that allow control of exposures Mm. for sure i mean for sure technology development is important in 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 reducing exposures that's absolutely true but i mean i think the the example that i don't know makes the case is the fact that silica do you know that silica did not have a standard (laughs) even though it's probably the oldest known occupational hazard ever until like two years ago and OSHA now has a silica standard but it really it takes not only first of all we've known that silica causes silicosis forever Mm -hmm. but it really was the lung cancer that was the nail in the coffin in the sense that that's what helped propel a standard but even that we've known for decades Mm 
Right. And what really makes a standard is there's got to be advocates and labor has got to be That's uh, interesting. pushing for it and there's got or somebody's got to be pushing for it and without a strong labor movement you know these things don't happen and so I actually hmm. think you know the people don't even in the field talk about OSHA standards very much anymore as a viable intervention I mean as a no huh. interesting wow because it's you know <laughs> passes one new standard every you know 10 years and and hmm. really what what you know, there's so much opposition or, you know, um, pushback. pushback, yes, against regulation and, mm. and much more reliance on, you know, voluntary adoption and, you know, encouragement, recommendation. Mm. So there are a lot of, I mean, I think it can be used to recommend standards and that's certainly useful because at least mm -hmm. it gives you guidance, you know, what NIOSH comes out with these recommended exposure limits. Mm -hmm. Well, that's actually, I wanted to ask you specifically about that. It seemed to me as someone who doesn't do occupational epi, and it sounds like you're um, supporting my prep, my presupposition that occupational epidemiologists are actually much more closely tied to policy and, um, like you said, lobbying and labor and kind of the uh, implementation of what they're finding into the field than maybe some other uh, fields of ep within epidemiology. Would you think, would you say that's true? Or rather, do you just gather the evidence base and then you say, take it, you know, do what you may, you must with it and you stay out of it? Um, I mean, I guess I do think that there's sort of a bifurcation in the field where there are mm -hmm. some people like myself who really are not very heavily invested in the mm -hmm. policy arena who just, I'd like, you know, what drives me is more the analysis, the esoteric pieces mm -hmm. of it and the, the, that all, but but there's a huge part of occupational health traditionally, and still mm -hmm. in some places, a lot of the, the, where there is a lot of activism and labor education and policy mm -hmm. and people doing policy. Um, I guess what I, but I, I worry that, um, or not I worry, but I do feel like it is, um, you know, uh, you can have occupational health programs that train practitioners, and those practitioners can be MPH level people who mm -hmm. do policy or do labor advocacy. And I don't know that you need a PhD to do those things. If right. you're gonna have a PhD program mm -hmm. in universities, then mm -hmm. I think, you know, you, then occupational epi has to, has to be more than an advocacy program, right? Yep, and yep, more, than, yep. more than that, it's gotta have some. Right, so maybe the, the, the department as a whole, like you said, it's multidisciplinary and the epidemiologists right, right, gather right, the evidence and then right. you gotta have people that, right. you know, you do. use that to, to form policy. Oh. I guess I guess let me follow up, the, the let me clarify the way I was asking the question. I was thinking of how a lot of epidemiologists um, gather information on exposures, behavioral exposures, let's say. And then what comes out of it is more recommendations for how you as an individual should behave. Yeah. Right? Whether that's right or wrong, we yeah. can get into later or whether right. that moves the needle, whatever. But that is how a lot of it goes. Whereas it seems to me with occupational epi, it's much more directly tied into an intervention for a group of people based on some kind of policy. Do you know what I mean? Where it's not just like, hey, take take this information and eat better or, right, or right, exercise. Right, right, it's right, like, right. no, we got to go do something about this, right? That's Does that true. Make sense? Although, right. Although, don't you think that's true? I mean, certainly, um, yeah. Uh, a lot of clinical work is about, you know, improving individual behaviors and, mm -hmm. and all the healthful lifestyles, but, right. but environmental epidemiology also, I think, you know, studies of air pollution, for example, are about protecting populations, right, mm -hmm. from mm -hmm. general hazards, mm -hmm. um, which you can't do at the individual level, right, you can't, right, um, so, 
So it's yeah, I think that's what it, that's why occupational health is or occupational epi is, and it is a subset of of environmental epi in, in that way, right? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, we're almost at ten forty-five. Ah, you didn't think we'd go an hour, <laughs> <laughs> but. We, we told you it always happens you told me, so, you told me so, you ask good questions yeah so so what so you know as we're talking about these uh you know when i think of occupational epi just and i try to give examples when teaching yeah. or lecturing anything like that i i often just go to like what i kind of would call the greatest hits in a way like this the research on textile workers showing relationships between asbestos and lung cancer different things um, so exposure, radiation in the workplace. I used to do work um, with uh, Department of Energy workers. Um, so like, what would you kind of call like, what, are there any kind of greatest achievements in occupational epidemiology you think are kind of like nice examples of the, the, the contribution that the field has made to worker health? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. To worker health. Give us the hits. The hits. Yeah, I mean, well, I teach a course um, every year, which is called environmental occupational epidemiology, and uh, and each week we we choose a particular topic, and the students read a paper in the literature, and then they go through a, a formatted critique, a structured critique, and that's the basis for the class discussion. Mm -hmm. So, um, so I guess probably the 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 articles, the the topics that we choose in that course over the years would probably be a good sample of what I would consider the greatest hits, um, and you know. Uh, when I think of textile, I actually think of cotton dust. Um, when mm. I think of textile uh, occupational epi, like the old endotoxin, you know, the old cotton dust endotoxin studies where they actually constructed a, like a, um, in, in Virginia, they actually built these machines that produced the dust and they, and huh. they actually exposed people. I mean, people went and sat there exposed to the cotton dust <laughs> right. a long time ago. It was, mm -hmm. they were fabulous studies, car, uh, model card room studies. They were called. Uh, of course, we can't do that anymore. I can't get IRB no. approval. These no, days. I don't no. think so. Not anymore. But no. so those patent dust studies were really were pretty amazing, and they were, mm. um, yeah. So that was that'd be one thing. Um, and that wasn't even a carcinogen. That was, you know, bisonosis. Mm -hmm. um, I think the the. Uh, that's actually sorry to interrupt you, but that's interesting okay. to me that they would even have to go that route, considering there's so many. <laughs> one of the reasons I thought occupational epi was is that you're like you've got a whole bunch of people that are exposed to stuff that may be right. harmful that right. we can study therefore right. we don't have to design a study where we force people to be exposed to it you know yeah, you, so like why are they saying oh yeah, now we're know, gonna go like, sit you know, in a room and blow know, this I, dust I, in your face that's a that's a really good question i think <laughs> the answer i haven't looked at these studies in a while but i think it was because it wasn't clear in that with the cotton dust what the etiologic agent was whether it was the uh, endotoxin per se and right. i think in this model card room they were able it. to generate controlled amounts of, of endotoxin mm. i don't know it was something they got like, a good gift card for that yeah maybe <laughs> right yeah they probably did yeah. <laughs> they probably did um let's see what else Sorry, back uh, to the hits sorry yeah okay back to the hits um you know of course we always do benzene that's why it's on my mind because it's yeah. such a classic um and uh and and also these they, they keep going i mean there is there are, nci is still doing benzene studies in china right huge right. right enormous benzene studies mm -hmm. um and so uh those 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 hits sort of keep on coming mm -hmm. um that's a good question what are the yeah i don't know uh, so, so, so when you when you when you mentioned benzene it really got me thinking about something i i didn't write down but i definitely wanted to ask you about 
which was which was the unique aspect of an occupational in epidemiology i think at least it's a bit unique in its susceptibility to industry influence Ooh. and i'm thinking here specifically of the diesel right. workers well, i was just going to mention diesel yeah that's diesel. The, that's the, diesel. that's the example right there that is right there that is amazing and actually i think i was at an initial meeting way back you know in the 80s maybe or whenever mm -hmm. that study started and with NIOSH and I sort of vaguely remember um, the players in the room but that has been an incredibly contested study of diesel yeah. cost in the miners uh, in the non-metal miners and that cohort which is was a NIOSH NCI jointly funded study um, to look at the I mean people are worried about diesel exhaust you know in the general environment right well, yeah you're actually working on some of that dems data these miners are exposed to diesel exhaust underground i mean their Ugh, level of yeah. exposure are orders of magnitude mm -hmm. higher than right. what what the general public is, is exposed to in, from traffic and and um i would definitely include that those studies and so they have found i mean they have found pretty in that case i'd say strong compelling evidence for lung cancer um, right how did how did industry get involved there to get some Boy, I, I mean they i mean we were work, we're working now with these nci investigators um uh who have been involved in this study from the get-go and they mm -hmm. are just harassed by mm -hmm. trade association lawyers they have been i mean really um taken you know to the taken to the mill or whatever you call it where they have to just document everything and they're always uh. getting you know, challenged and, and court issues, to injunctions to stop the work. And, wow. and, and um, so it's been a complete, it's been a, a hassle. It's been a yeah. big political, controversial, ugly at times, um, you know, process, but, but, but they have, you know, they've succeeded. The epidemiologists. That is a really yeah. unique aspect of some, thank you for bringing that up that yeah, I hadn't no, thought of yeah. is that you, you know, this is a field of epi where you have a, almost a lobbying agency right. against you yeah, putting right. out your right. findings. Right. There's time. other, there's other examples like yeah, this, but, others, um, exactly. you know, but yeah. you know, if you're talking about physical activity, you know, as a, as a risk factor, there's no big sedentary that's coming. <laughs> there's yeah. no lobbying group for the sedentary right, people of America to come and get you. So that is an interesting, yeah. Yeah. Wow. And I think Right. And it was, and I think it does make the field sort of lively. Yeah. Well, lively is <laughs> a good way yeah, to put it. Kind of that's one way to put it. Yeah. When, when, the, when the other side has hired guns all the time. Right. I mean, and, and those, those individuals, I mean, a lot of times they are people who have built reputations oh, in the field and right, then smart. represent oh, yeah. them. Oh yeah. Oh, they're smart. They're, they're, yeah. Right. Well, these guys are, yeah, they're, not, they're no dopes. These guys mm -hmm. were trying to yeah. take the other, you know, take it down and, and discredit it and, Right. Publish counter papers that say it's all garbage. And yeah. Right. So yeah. I'm wondering in your in your class, do you ever study some of the newer workplace exposures that may be emerging? I mean, I for one, I'm thinking of, you know, we've all got these cell phones in our pockets that need this, you know, uh, you know, the battery requires this particular metal, oh. you know, there's all these things like that. So, so, so what's emerging and because of the tech industry that, um, you know, people are studying now. As well, so I thought you were going to go for, when you started talking about cell phones, I thought you were going to go to you know, brain cancer. Brain oh, cancer. we already had a whole, too. we had a whole cell phone episode yeah, already. Right, we covered right. that. But it's actually, I mean, I was surprised <laughs> that I recently saw something that it was, it's still not a dead issue. I guess I thought it had pretty much been discredited mm -hmm, or, mm -hmm. you know, um, but Don't I guess, go into the 5G. We're not going into that here. Okay, let's yeah. not do that. It doesn't make um, it grow tails. No. <laughs> That's right. I mean, here's the thing. Uh, 
Um, no, so, I meant more like, you know, people yes. got to go dig this stuff out that's of the right. ground and that's make right. your phone. And that is yeah. ugly work. That is hard work with child labor. You know, there's child labor issues mm. involved in, in a lot mm. of that mining. Um, in, I mean, talk about vulnerable populations. Those, those are extreme. Um, and, uh, and of course, very difficult to study. And I don't think that I, I mean, I have a lot of colleagues who study um, uh, environmental or, or, or household air pollution, let's say, in, mm -hmm. in, um, in uh, under-resourced countries. Um, but I don't really know of much going on in global occupational health these mm -hmm. days that would look at, you know, issues like that, uh, mm -hmm. which would just raise a whole nother set of um, logistic um, concerns and, and yeah. So I don't really have much to say on that topic, but but it sounds like there's emerging. There's always going to be emerging areas yeah, of, yeah, of study yeah, in sure, the in the workplace. Sure, sure. Got it. For sure. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, I mean, we've we've talked about kind of all the like the kind of tangible exposures that um, we are very kind of historically aware of, and there have been determinations made on these, and others are still in question. But then, of course, we have kind of the like Brian was starting to get into the kind of like the more modern things. And yes. so as a, as a, you know, we can't, we can't have a podcast in 2022 without talking something about COVID a little bit. Okay. So, you know, okay. to think a little yeah. bit about like how COVID has impacted, um, impacted the field yeah. of occupational epidemiology. And I think you even said this in a commentary recently where really in a lot of ways, COVID has reignited the, the a need for focus on occupational epidemiology. I mean, I think I think a couple of things are true. I think that I think that is true, and I certainly know a lot of my sort of peers, um, some of my peers who are working in state health agencies, you know, who, who went that route, um, mm -hmm. have um, gotten really involved. Who do occupational surveillance, let's say, for health agencies, health departments, got really involved in the whole COVID uh, story, and mm -hmm. and just you know pounded on the fact that we don't collect routinely don't collect occupational information like on COVID cases for example and trying to get that into the public health um, surveillance system more generally has always been an uphill battle you know to get occupation uh, taken seriously as a key right. determinant of health uh, and I do think that COVID helped gave them some leverage um, in that in that battle which um, which a lot of them have you know taken advantage of so that's for sure um, True. Now I've lost the other point I was going to make. Let me see. While you're thinking about it, I'll yeah, say that right. it all, you almost could study exposure to COVID uh, as an outcome. You know, yeah, like some sure. some yeah. occupations were not able to just say, I'm going to go work from home for a year, you know, oh, for sure. and yeah. were directly exposed in a way that those of us who have a desk job, you yeah. know, weren't, you know, so no, that, that could be in and of itself. That's absolutely true. And mm -hmm. in fact, um, there is, I think, I don't know if it's related to the COVID, COVID, but there are actually people at Berkeley now studying valley fever, which is a California hmm. infectious hmm. disease that arises from the soil. And, and you get spikes where people are in, in construction sites where people are disturbing soil, but you also get spikes in prisons where I guess oh, wow. a lot of disruption of soil or, you know, hmm. around people. And so there's a big study that potentially we're going to be able to do looking at this infectious disease arising as in the course of, of work that um, incarcerated people are doing. Yeah. 
um, out in, I guess they, they work in, they work doing construction or they work in, in agriculture uh, in California and, um, and have a higher risk of these, this infectious disease. So it's not COVID, um, but actually COVID in prisons was another, I think. Oh, huge. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Huge. Um, yeah. Focus. Absolutely. So, yeah. Um, I never did remember the other thing I was going to say, but uh, oh, well. Oh, well. <laughs> okay. Oh, well. No, oh, that's part okay. two at some point. No, that's right. Um, exactly. yeah, maybe where the field is going, but I don't remember now. Okay. <laughs> that's okay. I think I, I, I think the, the, the main takeaway from it is that occupational epidemiology remains relevant regardless of uh, Absolutely. the changes in the workforce, the workplace mm -hmm. um, over time. But and we have we have done what we said we would do, Ellen, which is that we've taken almost an hour of your time. We did. We so. did. That's right. That's right. You guys were great. We appreciate yeah. it. Yeah, we yeah, appreciate thank you, you so joining much. us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. No, yeah. it was really a lot of fun, uh, and um, I look forward to listening to it. I don't know. Cool. <laughs> I yeah. don't know about that. Yeah. <laughs> we give it to your students. Give it to your. That's students. right. Perfect. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Thanks so much. Thanks. So right. before we go. If you are an epidemiologist, I strongly recommend you consider becoming a member of the Society for Epidemiologic Research. Membership gets you a discounted fee for the annual meeting, which will be held in June 2023 in Portland, Oregon, assuming no more pandemic setbacks, which we always say because we have to <laughs> at this point. <laughs> Membership also gives you access to the SCR library, which has some great learning materials, seminars, and activities. You can find out more at epiresearch.org. Also, just a quick statement that the views expressed in this podcast by both the hosts and any of our guests are ours and their views alone and do not represent the views or opinions of the Society for Epidemiologic Research. We appreciate you listening and we'll be back with another episode soon. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you.